Please open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 12. And when you finally stand with me to read God's Word, we live in a world of contrast, and today we will see the ultimate contrast. We're going to read Matthew 12, verses 43 to 45. These are the words of Jesus. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also will it be with this evil generation. Lord God, we thank you for your word. And we pray, Lord, that you would open our eyes, that we would see wonderful things in it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We live in a world of contrasts. And many of those contrasts are easy to see. It is not hard to tell the difference between black and white, night and day, positive or negative, hot and cold. But it is when the difference is harder to tell that it gets tough. Sometimes you can't tell the difference just by looking. It's like between, for you coffee drinkers out there, decaf and regular coffee. You can't tell just by looking. You, you know later when you can't get to sleep. Or milk that is fresh or turning. I developed a very annoying habit when I was a kid that I would, uh, I would do, and I still do to this day. Before pouring the milk, I would always smell it. I'd stick my nose right there in there and just make sure, because I didn't want to drink milk that was turning. It's also hard to tell the difference between sugar and salt when you're just looking at it. I may have told you this story before, but when Angela and I were first married, she made me my favorite cookies, oatmeal raisin cookies. And they looked amazing. Then I took a bite. You can't tell the difference between sugar and salt just by looking. They look the same, and you don't know the difference until you taste it. Now, there's a huge difference, but sometimes it's hard to tell between a Christian and a non-Christian, a believer and an unbeliever. And the reason why is because sometimes an unbeliever looks like a believer might even act like a believer. And sometimes a believer looks and acts like an unbeliever. We do not know for sure who is who. Only God knows. But the destiny one day of every person will be revealed. It's like when Jesus was talking about the wheat and the weeds. They're growing up and he allows them to grow up together because they look similar. But on the final day, one gets burned, the other gets gathered in a harvest. So not until the harvest is their true identity fully revealed. 
In this context, these three verses came in. And by the way, when, when I read these three verses, I just want to wash my hands sometimes. I, I want to run away. I don't like scary stuff. And, and this is scary stuff. This is, this, is, uh, this is not comforting. This is about someone who was, was possessed by an unclean spirit and then, and then gets repossessed. Jesus has been dealing with those who have rejected him. The context is the unforgivable sin of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And so we can't just take these three verses and airlift them out. We've got to take them in the context with which we find them, and it will help us make sense of what Jesus is saying. But the context is the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, the final irreversible rejection of Christ and chapter 12 of Matthew's gospel has has pretty much been a study in animosity and rejection it began with the Pharisees accusing Christ's disciples of breaking their Sabbath rules and Jesus calling for mercy not sacrifice and Jesus declaring that he is Lord of the Sabbath and then he heals a man's hand on the Sabbath And they take issue with that. Jesus speaks of the intrinsic value of every human being and all they could think of doing was destroying his life. He healed all who came to him. And then he healed a demon-possessed, blind, mute man. And they said he did it by Satan's power. Jesus said words reveal truth about us and he rebuked them for blasphemy and then they demanded an on the spot miracle to prove to them that he was the messiah they basically put stipulations on believing they said we will not believe unless you do what we tell you to do right now and then jesus spoke of why he came to earth that the sign that jesus that, that God would give is the cross showing the wisdom and the power of God it's, it's like Jonah Jesus was saying who was as, looked as good as dead and then was made alive that Jesus would go to the cross and be killed and be buried and rise from the dead on the third day and unlike the queen of Sheba who, who went far to seek out Solomon's wisdom the Pharisees had Jesus right there and showed no interest The testimony of Gentiles who repented would condemn them on the final day of judgment. Those who repented after hearing God's lesser spokesman would, their testimony would condemn those who heard God's greatest. The greatest of all. And Jesus' death and resurrection would be a sign for their destruction if not their salvation. And what we have here in these Three short verses really is Jesus giving a closing argument of sorts, much like a a lawyer would do in a court of law. He is giving a closing argument to the decision of to the discussion of the unpardonable sin. Jesus describes the condition of a person who has been affected by him, specifically being freed of a demon, as we saw earlier in this chapter in verse twenty two. 
But he describes a person who's been affected by Jesus, but never believed, wasn't saved, didn't have faith. And the ultimate contrast can be made between this person and the one who believes in Jesus. In these verses, we see the contrast between saving faith and condemning unbelief. Between faith that saves and unbelief that condemns a person. Because Jesus is highlighting here the the true condition of the one who rejects him. Whose rebellion leads them away from him rather than to him. The opposite is true for Christians. And he wants all to know that commitment to Jesus is essential to saving faith. And not only that, but rejection and rebellion and, and yes, even indifference to him is a sign of condemning unbelief. Belief in Jesus is essential to salvation. If a person rebels or rejects or, or is indifferent to Jesus, it shows they're not saved. Now that seems too obvious for us who believe, but for many people today, they will deny that that is true. They will say, I, we don't believe that. They will say that they think there are many ways to get to God. They will say that they deny that He even exists. That we live and then we die into nothingness. That all there is is what we can see and, and, and feel and touch and, and hear on earth. What these verses show is the tragedy of those who are lost. The tragedy of those who are on their way to hell. In Christ's example of this person who does not believe, we see two primary contrasts between believers and unbelievers. The first you see in verses 43 and 44. That a person will either be possessed by God or owned by Satan. In verse 43, Jesus says, when the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, and this is what he had done, he had cast out a demon. It says that it passes through waterless places and it's seeking an abode, it's seeking a place to dwell. And it says in verse 44, I will return to my house. You notice the the ownership. I will return to my house where I came from. And when it comes, it finds the house empty. Swept. Put in order. A lot of you wish your house was put in order right now. The key word here is empty. The house is empty. The life is empty. The soul is empty. It's unoccupied. It's the Greek word skole where we get our word school from this. It literally means to be at leisure, to devote yourself to something else. Now you can figure out how that relates to school. <laughs> House is empty. It, it, there's, other, there, there's something else more important going on somewhere else. And the house is swept. It, it's in the perfect tense, meaning it is completely, thoroughly swept. We used to spend time in Rosarito, Mexico about three or four times a year at a, a church we helped start down there and we would go to Pastor Pablo Flores' house and about 30 of us would stay at his house for the whole weekend. And we would come into his house, a very simple, 
simple house made of leftovers and, and old materials and, and it was a, 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 a cement concrete floor and you'd walk in and it was spick and span swept perfectly clean and then we would all come in and trudge in our mud and our dirt and for a couple days and every time we would come back into that house perfectly swept clean you could eat off the floor but here this house is, is thoroughly swept out and it's put in order it's, it's arranged. It's, it's, it's literally decorated. It, we get our, our word cosmetic from this word cosmeo. Uh, some of you uh, are wearing cosmetics right now. You have applied these and spent much care to do so before you got here. Well, uh, there was care to put the house in order, but it had no tenant. It was fully prepared for one. All the rubbish had been removed, but no one was home. No one lived there. It's been left unoccupied. It's, it's vacant. It's abandoned, all ready to be inhabited. So Jesus is giving an example of, here's a person who has even been healed or freed from demon possession by Jesus, and the vacuum here is filled by nothing for now. It's an indication of no faith. It's an indication of no belief. It's an indication of rejecting, rejecting Jesus. That they've experienced some of the benefits of the kingdom of God. They have seen what God can do. They have recognized the difference between darkness and light. And they still either won't or can't or don't see the need to believe. It's because the person is dead in sin and unable to do anything. They've chosen their own way and they will be held liable by God. No excuse before a holy God. But it really points out something here. The house was, was empty, swept, and put in order. But this is the truth we must, we must grapple with that a well-ordered life is not a sign of saving faith. A well-ordered life is not evidence of saving faith. A Christ-acknowledging, spirit-filled, spirit-led life is. See, a Christian-looking life doesn't make you saved. A, a moral life doesn't make you saved. Living a good life doesn't make you saved. Doesn't make anybody a Christian. Jesus makes Christians. Well, I love to quote 1 Corinthians 1, verse 30. By, by his doing, you are in Christ. Jesus makes Christians. The gift of faith is necessary. And, and, and if it is present, there will be observable evidence. You'll be able to know. That person will be Christ-acknowledging. 1 John 4 tells us that any spirit that does not confess Christ does not belong to him. That no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. There will be Christ acknowledging. They will acknowledge the truth of who Jesus is. They will, they will say, yes, we agree. I agree that Jesus is who the Bible says he is. If not, even if they remain silent, that, that's, uh, Jesus says, if you're not with me, you're against me. 
They'll be spirit-filled. Ephesians 5.18, for good reason, says, do not be drunk with wine. Do not let yourself be controlled by a substance, but be filled with the Spirit of God. Be continually filled with the Spirit. There's a connection there. They'll be spirit-filled and also spirit-led. Romans 8 and verse 13 and 14 says this, If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. There's evidence of life. There's evidence of ownership. There's evidence of, of uh, a family connection. One of the questions that inevitably comes up when you look at verses like this is the question, can a true believer be possessed by a demon? And let me give you the answer very, very quickly. No. The answer is no. But a believer can be harassed, can be oppressed, can be influenced. They can actually invite a foothold of demonic activity in their life by the choices they make. But they can never be possessed. And the reason why is when you're in Christ, He owns you completely. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit have taken up residence in your life and you are His. And this is the truth we need to be reminded of. This is the truth we need to cling to when we doubt. This is the truth that we must base our perception of God and our self-perception on. That we should not doubt the Word of God. 1 John chapter 5, verses 11 and 12. Speaking of believers, says this. This is the testimony that God has given us eternal life. He's given believers eternal life. And this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. Jesus, in the context of speaking of Himself as the, as the Good Shepherd in John chapter 10, says this. I give my sheep eternal life. And they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. He keeps those who come to him. What you see in these verses is that, that Jesus is wrapping up a discussion of the unforgivable sin by going back to the situation that started it. When he healed the demon-possessed blind mute man. And they said he did it by Satan's power. And he wanted the man who was freed and everyone else who heard to realize that ownership by the devil must be replaced with ownership by Christ. Romans chapter 6. Go there with me. Romans 6. Romans chapter 6 and verse 17 says this. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you have become slaves of righteousness. You move over to verse 20. It says this, When you were slaves of sin, this is speaking to believers, when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? The end of those things is death. 
But now that you have been set free from sin and to become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The idea is that ownership by the devil must be replaced with ownership by Christ. That it is foolish not to believe. The Bible tells us the fool says in his heart there is no God. So if someone tells you there's no God, he's a fool. And you can tell him. Now don't, don't tell him it's from you though. Let him know where, that God says that. Or else you might get yourself in a little uh, squirmish. But that might be the most merciful thing you can say to a person, that they are in the category of fool because they're saying that God does not exist when he does. There are a lot of people in that category. But just as an unoccupied home invites squatters, I mean, there's a lot of, we live in a time right now where there are a lot of vacant homes. And and I wonder, you know, Who's, people leave windows and doors open. Who's, who's staying in those homes? Who's, who's going in and kind of just, hey, it's open. I'm just going to hang out here. An unoccupied home invites squatters. It invites um, people just to kind of come on in. But the unattached, uncommitted, and unbelieving soul invites disaster. The first thing is you're going to be either possessed by God or or possessed by Satan, owned by Satan. The second thing is a person will be either eternally blessed by God or forever cursed. We see that in verse 45. Jesus says, then that demon goes and brings with it seven other. Other here means different. The word means of another sort. He says seven other spirits more evil. Well, the demon was evil, but it brought more evil demons, ones that are worse. And it says that the last state, the final, ultimate state of that person is worse than the first. And Jesus says, so also will it be with this evil generation. So what happens is this evil spirit sets up house there. They dwell there. And the result is more severe than before. It's the unclean spirit returning to the life from which it was banished. And as a result, the life is worse than ever. And it shows that there are consequences to rejecting Jesus. That people will either spend eternity with God in heaven, or they will spend eternity apart from God in hell. And kids, I know your mom and dad said not to say that word. I'll say it for you. It's in the Bible, in this context. That nothing less than the eternal destiny of every person is at stake. That where a person will spend eternity is of utmost importance. And most of us, when we first come to faith in Christ, we're thinking that all the time. And then we somehow get, we get calloused to this truth that where a person will spend eternity is of utmost importance therefore therefore what does every Christian need to do 
What should every Christian do in response to hearing these three verses in this context? I'll give you three things. The first, every Christian needs to understand what it means to be a Christian. Many do not understand what it means to be a Christian. A lot of people can tell you what a doctor is. They can tell you what an elephant is. They can tell you what a, a Lakers fan looks like or a UCLA fan looks like. But, but a fog sets in when they're asked, what's a Christian? Tell me what a Christian is. Oh, you know, that, that, that's kind of that's complicated. No, it's not. It's really simple. They can describe to you a brain surgeon, but not a believer. There are plenty of false definitions of a believer floating around. So I understand how it can be confusing to some. But we aren't looking for opinions here. We want to know what does the Bible say? What does the Bible say a Christian is? I, I, I just quoted it a few minutes ago. That's the most simple place you can go is 1 John 5, 11 and 12. Here, here's the test. Do you have Jesus in your life? You do? You're a believer. You're a Christian. Do you, do you not have Jesus in your life? You're not. It's as simple as that. You either have Jesus in your life or you don't. You either believe or you don't. You either follow Christ or you don't. And I know living here in Orange County, there are so many people running around going, I'm a follower of Jesus. Oh, I'm a follower of Jesus. And then I live like I'm not. But it doesn't matter because love conquers all. You know what? They're deceived. There are a lot of people running around deceived, thinking they're a Christian. They're, they're saying, I'm a follower of Jesus until something better comes up. A Christian is not just someone who says they are or looks and acts the part. A Christian is anyone who is trusting Jesus Christ to save them apart from anything they can do on their own. That's what a Christian is. A Christian is someone who is saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, as revealed in God's word alone, for God's glory alone. A Christian is someone who has Jesus in their life. And not just as a tack-on addition, but as the primary focus of their life. I realized something recently as I was thinking this through. That we need to understand some of the basic concepts that we throw around a lot in Christian circles. I very often say, quoting Acts chapter 16 and verse 31, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. That's what the Bible says. But what I'm realizing is that when I say believe to 100 people, there, are, there could literally be a hundred different opinions of what believe means. So let's look at a couple terms. Number one, believe. What does believe mean? Believe means totally trust. Totally trust, 100%. To trust completely. Not just to think, you know, I'm going to hang on to this one until something better surfaces. Or, or, you know, I think this is true for me. What it means is to yield your life completely to God. That's what believe means. So believe in the Lord Jesus means yield your life completely to God. 
Yield your life completely to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what it means. Trust in him completely. Another word that we kind of don't understand sometimes is repent. Repent means turn from sin to God. It doesn't mean I'm going to hold this sin behind my back and maybe God won't see it. I'm going to coddle my sin. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, it's going to be my little pet. And God will be okay with it because God's a God of grace. Well, that's not grace. See, repent means turn to sin, turn from sin to God. Not just feel bad you got caught. It means to run away from it if you have to. It means get it out of your life. And then there's the word forgive. Oh, yeah, I'm forgiven. But I'm not going to let you go with, from what you did to me. Because you should have never done that. And I'm going to remember that till I go to the grave. Am I quoting anyone here? <laughs> I hope not. I hope not. But, but forgive means to let it go forever. Let it go forever. Now, we love that when it relates to Jesus letting our sin go forever. The problem is, we don't want to do that with somebody else. But the problem is, if we don't want to do that with someone else, we show we don't know what it means for Jesus to forgive us. We think he's holding it over our head too. Let it go forever. Don't just let it go for now, but let it go forever. It goes along with this idea of of understanding what it means to be a Christian is that God wants you to be a biblical thinker and a biblical believer. And I'm going to say the name of someone that I don't know how to pronounce their name, but I'm going to say it confidently, and this is how you'll know how this person's name is, is pronounced. Because it's a very hard uh, name, and it's a weird name, and, and here it is, Thabiti Anyabwili. And Thabiti Anyabwili says this in his book, Marks of a Healthy Church Member, that they ought to be an expositional listener. What does that mean? That means they're listening for, what does the Word of God say? What is God saying in his word in context? And he also says that a healthy church member ought to be a biblical theologian. Now, I don't know how many people I've heard say, well, I don't want to be a theologian. Oh, you don't? Really? You don't want to think big thoughts of God? You don't want to think amazing, believe amazing truths about God? A healthy church member should be a biblical theologian. You should believe biblical things about God. You should develop a biblical worldview. And you're going to say, well, what's a biblical worldview? Well, it's a view of the world that's inspired and, and in, engaged according to what the Bible says. But here's what's been found. That only 4% of adults and only 9% of evangelical Christians have a biblical worldview. Do you know what that means? That there are a lot of people running around saying, I'm a Christian who don't believe what the Bible says. Or don't know what it says. Wow. That's scary. You've got to have a, a biblical worldview. Um, a biblical worldview, again, is a, is a view of the world inspired and informed by God's word. And it necessitates a, a strong grasp of the authority of Scripture and, and the sufficiency of Scripture. That it's from God to us. And what also goes along with this understanding uh, uh, what it means to be a Christian is to examine yourself. Now, I know there's a lot of medical 
things out there where you're supposed to examine yourself, but you're not supposed to examine yourself every single day or every single moment. It's just often enough to make sure, right? So you, you, to examine yourself often spiritually. Not every moment of every day, but often enough to know where you stand with God. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 13 says this. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. It doesn't get clearer than that. Believers are to examine themselves and make sure they believe. Test yourselves, it says. Or do you not know this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, speaking to believers, unless indeed you fail the test. If Jesus isn't in you, you failed. Nobody wants to fail the test. So study. Study for the test. Read the Bible. See what it says. Make sure your, 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 your life wrap, um, matches up to it. Second Peter 1. It says this. It says, be, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. That God has called you and has chosen you. Make sure of that. Romans eleven twenty nine 29, in the context of God's electing grace, says this, the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. Irrevocable means not going to change, not going to be taken away. Many people have taken that verse out of context and said, if God's given you a spiritual gift, he'll never change it or never It'll never be taken away. That's totally taken scripture out of context. What it means is, is that God, if he has called you to salvation, it's not going to change. That's where the eternal security of believers is, is rooted. By the way, I, I'm concerned for some. Very concerned for some whose hearts are so tender, whose souls are so sensitive that every time you read something like this, you think that you're in trouble, that, you're, that it's you, and you're, you've, you're, you're in, a, in a bad way. And you wondered about it when we spoke about the unpardonable sin a few weeks back. And, and now you're wondering if this, these three verses are describing you. And let me just say this, if, if that's you. Self-examination in the Christian life is necessary. The unexamined life becomes a shambles. But assurance is something every believer wants to have. That our examination of ourselves ought to spring from our assurance and security in Christ. Because an assurance of our security in Christ breeds a deep sense of wonder at the grace of God. And a deep sense of our unworthiness before him and a deep sense of our utter helplessness before him and, and a deep sense of our utter dependence upon him. That's where your self-examination must flow from, from an assurance of your security in Christ. Quickly, I just want to give you the last two things that every Christian needs to do. The second thing is clearly preach the gospel. Clearly evangelize the lost. Make the gospel message clear and plain and simple and straightforward. That's why we gave you those tools. That's why there's so many things available. Be very, very 
become very familiar with Scripture, specifically Scripture like 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 5, that says Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried and that He was raised from the dead according to the Scriptures. All those places in the Bible that speak so clearly of what Christ did, we must become very familiar with so that we can speak with others the the matchless grace of God. Uh, Greg Gilbert suggests this in his very simple way he wrote in his book, What is the Gospel? He said, show them God the righteous creator and man the sinner and Jesus Christ, the self-substituting sacrifice, the Savior. And, And show them the response required that faith and repentance are called for. Call for a response to the gospel. Give a gospel invitation. I I know I've gotten away from that over the years. I come from Baptist roots where you give one every single time you open up the Bible. Even if you're the only one there. But but it's easy to say, well, you know, we'll just let people kind of figure it out on their own and they'll they'll come there. And, And I understand that. You can overdo both sides, both ends of the spectrum. But there's got to be that sweet spot in the middle where we're able to share the gospel and say, and how about you? Where do you stand with God? Tell them there's two ways to live. That there is a a way to live for yourself and a way to live for Jesus. And remember, tools are just tools, but they can be very helpful. But share the gospel often. Uh, It would not be a bad thing if someone came up to you one day and said, would you please stop bringing Jesus into every conversation? But the other thing you don't want to have happen is someone to say, I hear you're a Christian. Could you please say something about him? When was the last time you, you told your story? When was the last time you shared with someone? Some people, the only time they ever tell how they came to know Christ is when they get baptized. We should be, when, when we, before our, hit, our feet hit the ground in the morning, we should say, thank you, Jesus, for saving me from my sins. Thank you that I can be alive today knowing that my eternity, eternity is secure because of who, what you did. We should be preaching the gospel to ourselves all the time because here's the thing. The more often you preach the gospel, tell the gospel to yourself, the more dear it's going to become to you. It's not elementary. It's, it's, it's essential. And the more you, 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 you tell the gospel to yourself, the more you're going to tell it to other people. It's just the way it is. Last thing. We've got to trust the sovereignty of God in this whole context. We've got to leave the results to God. That, that we've got to believe that true change only happens by Him. That the miracle of regeneration, of rebirth, a spiritual birth, is a God-giving blessing leading to faith and repentance and reformation of a person's life change will happen our only hope is God I love the way J.I. Packer put it in his book Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God he said this and he so clearly shows how divine sovereignty and human responsibility are good friends they're biblical friends he said this when we evangelize our trust must be in God who raises the dead he is the almighty Lord who turns people's hearts And he will give conversions in his time. 
Meanwhile, our part is to be faithful in making the gospel known. Sure that such labor will never be in vain. This is how the truth of the sovereignty of God, God's grace bears on evangelism. And let me just say that love and mercy must season our interactions with other people. We've got to remember where we came from. But also remember this, that reaching out is no guarantee of redemption. That there are some people who will face the truth about themselves and believe the gospel and be saved and they'll join the feast with us. But there are going to be some people who who continue to try to run their own life and say no to Jesus. And there will be some people who will basically shake their puny fists at God continually. And this is where we've got to land. We've got to be leaving it in the hands of God, expecting a human response. Leave it in the hands of God and expect a human response. You know, the ultimate contrast we've been talking about, it happened when, when God the Son became a man in the person of Jesus Christ. It happened when God became a man and the Most High took the lowest spot. When the sinless one took all of, all of our sin upon himself. When the righteous one died for the unrighteous. When God substituted himself for the ungodly. And we who believe are living with the reality of, of the ultimate contrast every single day. And what we must do as we proceed is, is, is prayerfully and patiently and boldly share the gospel of the grace of God. And, and we're going to take that where many have gone historically, but maybe few have gone in our context. We've got to believe that nothing less than uh, complete commitment to Christ is essential for salvation. But rejection and rebellion and even indifference to Christ is a sign of unbelief. And, and we've got to believe what Jesus said because he made the ultimate contrast. Here's what he said. He that is not with me is against me. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your truth thank you for your love and your grace we thank you jesus that you drive out demons thank you lord that you free people from satan's hold on their life and thank you lord for your miraculous work but we we know that the miraculous work is meaningless apart from commitment to to you and that the person without faith in christ is defenseless against evil how dangerous it is to experience your power but hesitate to commit to you so, Lord, we, we ask even ourselves now, what side of the, of the contrast are we on? Are we living and sharing the gospel of your grace in Christ, or are we rejecting and rebelling against the truth that you have shown? Lord, reveal that to us. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.